0: reading from Ruth chapter 4 beginning at the 13th verse, and Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife, and he knew her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she gave birth to a son. So the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel." He shall be a restorer of life to you and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law, who you love, who is who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. And Naomi took the child and placed him on her lap, and she became his nurse. And so the women of the neighborhood gave him a name. And they said, A son has been born to Naomi. And they called his name Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I met Lori five years ago in my past parish in Ottawa. Lori uh, was a Scandinavian PhD chemistry student. Lori was brilliant. Lori sat in the front pew of our church one day and she scowled at me the entire time. And she did that for a few weeks and finally I said, let's get a cup of coffee and we went out and she told me that she didn't believe a thing I was saying, was offended by most of it and was pretty angry. Lori, as we sat there over coffee and There was coffee after coffee after coffee visit over many months, Lori uh, would show just how angry, how pagan, how offended by the gospel she was. Just like I was once angry and pagan and so offended by the gospel. And so I, I stuck it out with her, but after a few months of coffees, I didn't see a lot of shift. The questions were about the same. And so I finally said to Lori, I said, Lori, uh, why do you come to church? Why do you come to coffee? I wasn't trying to put her off, but just saying, I just would love to know from you, what is this doing for you? You come to church, you're coming to young adults, you're having coffee with the rector. And she said, well, I feel welcomed here. You know, I told the story a couple weeks ago, right? This is the girl. I feel welcomed here. I mean, this is kind of welcome, kept her coming back, bringing her questions. The problem is I lost track of Lori, as often happens, for a couple years. Just lost track. And do you know what? Just two Sundays before my last Sunday in Ottawa, before I came here, Lori showed back up in church. And she said, let's go for coffee. And do you know what Lori told me about those couple years that she was away? Well, you'll have to hear it at the end of the sermon. Um, (laughs) We've been walking through the book of Ruth this last four weeks. This is the last Sunday. Ruth is this amazing picture of the story of a Christian life. It's the Old Testament, and yet we find as we read through Scripture that Jesus is found everywhere. The entire Bible, beginning to end, is one big story of Jesus. And the book of Ruth is a wonderful example, an allegory, kind of a symbolic illustration of what it's like for a person to meet their Redeemer, for a person to meet Jesus. We saw, as we've gone through the book of Ruth, chapter 1, that our journey to meet Jesus begins in Moab, it begins in a bad place, it begins in a place of brokenness, sin, Real corruption, real brokenness, real pain. And yet, chapter 2 shows us that through very ordinary circumstances, not burning bushes, not lightning bolts, not words falling from heaven, but so often in our lives, just like Ruth, almost the anonymous little movements of God's sovereign hand of grace get us into our Redeemer's field. Ruth meets Boaz, her Redeemer, her Goel, as it says in Hebrew, her appointed human rescuer. That in Israel, there was this role of Goel, this kinsman Redeemer, who was a closely related relative, whose job it was to rescue you if you ended up in trouble. So she, by God's sovereign, very gentle movements, ends up meeting her Redeemer, just like we, through often very gentle movements of God's grace. introduce introduce us to Jesus. I give thanks to God for all those little ways that he worked in my life to bring me to Jesus. But when Ruth meets Boaz in chapter two, she finds an amazing welcome, this amazing hospitality. Boaz shows her a kind of love, a kind of welcome, a kind of provision that is unexpected. I mean, she's a foreigner. She's a Moabite, She's, she's not from here. She's got no claim on Boaz. She's unworthy. She hasn't earned any of this, and yet he showers her with this welcome, this hospitality. And in chapter 3, because she's gotten to know her Redeemer in this amazing, gracious welcome, this gracious, radical hospitality, Ruth asks Boaz to marry her. Spread your wings over me, she says, which is code for marry me. And as I said last week... That this is the picture of the Christian life, that eventually we get to the place we've met Jesus, but we have to make a decision. At some point along the way, we've come to know Jesus, we've sat under the gospel, we've heard about his radical love and hospitality, but we need to say yes to it. We need to say, marry me. There was a parishioner who told me that on this week, that on last Sunday, she got in the parking lot with her husband and he sat down in the car. He had a bit of a smile on his face and he said, well, I guess we need to get divorced. She said, what? He said, yeah, well, the rector told me i got to marry Jesus. (laughs) I said, you're not quite following me. (laughs) But we do, we need to make that decision. Now, here in chapter four, we find the end of the story and we see two amazing things happen here. Two amazing things happen. We see just how radical Jesus' hospitality is. If you think you've seen so far a radical welcome from Jesus in this story, you ain't seen nothing until chapter four. And not only do we see this radical welcome, this radical hospitality, but we also see the reason for the radical hospitality. Why does God love us like this? Why? Why does God reach out and show us such radical hospitality? So as we open this up today, we will see how radical God's hospitality is and we will see why. So, let's dig in how radical is God's hospitality? How radical is God's gracious welcome to us? Well, look at Boab, Boab, Boaz and how he greets Ruth. Look at how he treats Ruth in chapter 4. As we look at Ruth and her great hospitality welcome from Boaz, we begin to see a picture of Jesus. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Ruth chapter 4 begins at the gates of the city. Now Boaz had gone up to the gates and sat down there. Now the reason he goes to the gates... The gate is the center of the city. This is where buying and selling takes place. This is where contracts are signed. This is where the elders gather. If you want to do something publicly, you do it at the gate of the city. Verse 2 then says he's going to find some witnesses. Verse 2 says, he turned and took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. So you've got Boaz at the gate of the city. And he's got elders gathered with him, witnesses. What's he doing? Well, the next few verses talk all about this weird sandal ceremony with his other uh, redeemer. We'll talk about that in another sermon another time. The point is that Boaz is just clearing away any obstacle to marrying Ruth. And then verse 9 comes. And we understand now why he's at the gates and why he's got the witnesses. Verse 9. Boaz said... If I can find my place, I need to get glasses and I'm so arrogant I won't wear them. You are witnesses this day. That's not what Boaz said, by the way. That's what I was, um, sorry to confuse you there. That's not in the scriptures. (laughs) Boaz said, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech, this is her dead husband, and that belonged to Kilian and Malon, her dead sons. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife. See, the reason Boaz has gathered at the gate and the reason that Boaz has gathered witnesses is that as he comes to marry Ruth, he makes it public. He takes the whole thing public. And this is why we do the same thing with our marriages, right? We don't just grab a priest Oh, I get that joke all the time. I'm on an airplane and there's newlyweds and they find out I'm a priest. And if they don't, you know, totally turn off the conversation and like move their body language away from me once they find out I'm a priest. Sometimes they'll say, oh, well, hey, we could just get married right now. Right? I'm always like, sort of. But they actually can't without a witness. In our marriages, you actually need witnesses. You need to do this in the place, in, in the face of other people. The witnesses are required because it's public, it's binding. See what Boaz is doing at the gate, this place of commerce with the witnesses as he declares that he's purchasing Ruth to marry her, is he's declaring that his marriage to her is a covenant, it's a contract, it's binding. You see, he's making this hospitality that he's offering Ruth permanent. See, back in chapter two, when she met Boaz, she said, wow, this guy's amazing. I mean, he's so hospitable. He's, you know, fed me and protected me and done all these things. And she says in verse 10 of chapter two, she says, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? I mean, she's amazed by this. But in this moment at the gate, what he's saying is this radical welcome I've given you, that you don't deserve, that you don't haven't earned, but that I give to you freely, this radical welcome is not temporary, it's not conditional. Here at the gate, with all the witnesses watching, this hospitality I've offered you is forever. This hospitality I'm offering you is a contract that's binding forever. I mean, what he's really saying in this moment at the gate is Ruth my welcome to you, my hospitality to you, my love for you is forever. It's not conditional, it's not gonna fade away, it's not like he's gonna offer his love and his hospitality to Ruth and say, as long as you keep the scorecard in a good place, as long as you continue to be a worthy woman, as long as you continue to get good grades on the scorecard of your morality, You know, if if you do well, then I'll continue to love you. No, he says, my love for you is eternal, is binding, is permanent. And the word we use in scripture, covenant. This is a contract, a binding contract I'm making with you. I mean, do you see how much greater this hospitality is? It's not fleeting. It's not based on what she does or what she's earned, but rather it is guaranteed and forever and always hers as a covenant. Next week, we're going to start a series looking at the life of Abraham as we go through Lent, and we're going to talk all about biblical covenants there. But for now, what Ruth is being told is he's saying, Ruth, my welcome to you, my love for you is not, hear this, is not circumstantial. My love for you is covenantal. My love for you remains. This is a binding agreement, and the witnesses are here, and it's done at the, at, right at the, at the city gates as a public declaration. And so it is with our relationship with Jesus. You see, what God has done in Jesus is he has offered us a hospitality, a welcome. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, Jesus says. But not only does he welcome these broken people, I mean, isn't it true that you and I are all Moabites? That none of us have any rights to come to God? You know, Scripture says that before we are in Christ, we're enemies of God. There's nothing that we've deserved from God except wrath and condemnation. And Yet Jesus has offered us this amazing welcome, come to me, let me love on you, to use a southern term. But Jesus goes further to make it permanent. He makes his love for us, his welcome, a covenant. And we see this key word that's used in the book of Ruth. It's this great Hebrew word. you got to kind of get it out of your throat. It's a guttural chesed. Chesed. It's three times, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chesed. It means steadfast love. That at the, if you want to know the character of God's love... It's chesed love, it's steadfast, it's covenantal, it's guaranteed, it's binding. I mean, the point is that friends, you and I, we are not chesed, we are not steadfast, but God is. You see, his love for us is not based on our ability to continue to be good enough people but rather his love for us remains. He comes and says, I will make a public declaration that tells the whole world that if you are in Christ, you are forever under my chesed love, my covenantal steadfast love. You know Lamentations? Lamentations 3, that phrase that some of you might have on a fridge magnet about steadfast love? You know, this, this... language of God's steadfast love. By the way, Lamentations tells us that that doesn't mean you're going to get a Rolls Royce and, you know, health and wealth and, you know, all this stuff because there's real pain in our lives and yet God's love is steadfast even through the pain. Listen to Lamentations. Remember my affliction and my wanderings. This part probably isn't on your fridge magnet. Remember my affliction and my wanderings. The wormwood and the gall. I mean, this is just like the most terrible, bitter pain. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. In the midst of my pain, this is what I remember. I remember the character of your love. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning, new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, O Lord. Great is thy faithfulness. That is chesed. That is the character of Jesus' love for us. It does not waver. It is not conditional. It is not circumstantial. It's a covenant and it remains. And of course, Jesus did this publicly, just like Boaz. A gate was involved. He went through the gate, in this case, walking through that gate in Jerusalem, carrying his own cross, and went up a hill. In the eyes, in the view of the city gate of Jerusalem, Jesus crucified. As a public testimony before so many witnesses, that says, here my blood is poured out for all who would come to me. Jesus says, and I, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. This is the picture of the public declaration that Jesus has made over our lives. You, if you are in me, you are mine forever. Steadfast. I mean, do you see what this means? I mean, I know I keep saying this, but I mean, Do you see what this means? God's welcome to us. God's hospitality is not based on our goodness. It's not based on our circumstances. It's based on his hesed. It's based on his covenant, his steadfast love for us. And that's why the church provides these covenantal moments in our life together. We have moments where we enter into that covenant. It's called baptism. We say, yes, I wanna marry Jesus. And so I get baptized and the whole set of promises of the covenant comes onto my life. And then we later on have a confirmation where we stand before the bishop and again we're entering into that covenant, we're renewing that covenant. We, if we've been confirmed, can be reaffirmed or we can be received. There's all these opportunities for us to enter again into this covenant and be reminded of the nature of his love for us. It is that radical, it is not fading away. You know Martin Luther, This year we're celebrating 500 years since Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the door of Wittenberg Cathedral. Martin Luther, you know, whenever he'd be tempted to disbelieve, whenever he'd be tempted to lose his faith and feel like, oh, the guilt has come upon me, tempted to despair, he would be sitting in his study and he always believed that there was this corner of his room and that's where the devil would tempt him from. Luther was a bit weird. But the point is that there was this corner, brilliant but weird, like many people. The point is over here in the corner, he thought the devil was tempting him. And do you know what he'd say to the devil? He wouldn't say, oh, and I'm going to, you know, sort of, you know, try and screw up my courage. And, and No, he would yell at the devil and say, I have been baptized. And if it came again, I have been baptized. I mean, what's he doing? He's claiming the covenant. I know who I am. I have been brought into the covenant. It is not based on my circumstances. It's not based on my fleeting feelings. It's based on the truth of God's chesed, steadfast, covenantal love for me. That is the nature of his hospitality. Look how radical that is. And friends, there's a great covenantal moment we have every week, where as we come right here to the table and we celebrate all that Jesus has won for us, I mean, is it so surprising that Jesus says in the Last Supper, and we quote every Sunday, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. We come to be reminded and enter into that covenant, renew that covenant week after week. This is who I am. As you come, you come and renew covenants and enter in afresh. It's not based on how your week is going. It's based on his steadfast covenantal love that's how radical his welcome his hospitality is for us Moabites that's how radical it is and so here's the question as I close why very quickly why why would God do this why is this the nature of his love why would he be like this towards us I mean some would say maybe it's so he can show us his love yes yes Some would say, to show us what grace is. Yes. Do you know how you sum up both of those together? Why does God show us this kind of radical hospitality? To show us his glory. This is why God does this. God loves you and me, Moabites, as we are this way, because he wants to show us and to show the world his glory. Look at verse 14 of our text. Verse 14, the women say to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. Renowned, may be glorified, may be shouted from the rooftops. May God get the glory because of what's happened in your life. You see, the word glory is used a lot throughout the Bible. And, and, and sometimes you might wonder, like, what does glory actually mean? Um, you could say it, it, it's defined as God's majesty, um, God's wonderfulness, um, I like to say in the context of today's reading from the transfiguration of Jesus, he's up on the mountain, he becomes glowing and his clothing becomes brilliant light, that the glory of God is his shininess. All that makes him attractive, all that makes him beautiful, that's the glory of God. And the world will stand aback and say, wow, when they see this kind of radical hospitality offered to Moabites like you and me, broken people, ordinary broken people like you and me, the world looks at what God does in our lives and says, there is something different about this God. There is something genuinely different about the way he loves and the way he receives, and God gets the glory as people see his love operating in our lives. You see, the Lord is really showing off what he can do with broken Moabites like you and me. I mean, that's where he gets the glory because everyone looks at a broken Moabite, a broken life, an ordinary person, and when God comes into our lives and transforms it, the world stands back and says, there's something radically different there. Clearly, there must be a God because you couldn't have done this. And what's amazing is with this call, I mean, with this covenant comes a calling. With this amazing covenant of love comes a calling for us. I mean, you can describe the call of God we have in so many different ways. For today's purposes, let me define the call of God this way, to be agents of his glory in this world to be reflections of his glory, to be living pictures of his glory, to be a display people, people on display to the world to say look and see the glory of God operating in this broken sinner's life. You see in verse 17 we see an amazing call that gets lived out through Ruth, this Moabite widow, this broken woman who has received such amazing covenantal love. We read that, A son has been born and they named him Obed and we think oh Obed yeah I know that name somewhere in scripture and then it says he was the father of Jesse and we oh yeah Jesse now that one sounds really familiar Jesse 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 who's he the father of David David King David the greatest king in all of Israel Ruth is his great-grandmother God takes this broken, ordinary Moabite widow who has no reason to believe she's got any standing before God. He uses her with his covenantal grace to bring about the greatest king in Israel's history. And it gets even better than that because it's not really about David, is it? It's about David's line. Who ultimately comes from David? Who is in the Davidic line? Who ultimately ends up coming from this Moabite redeemed woman? Jesus. You see, the story of Ruth doesn't end in chapter 4. The story of Ruth actually pops up again in Matthew chapter 1. I don't know about you. You start your new Bible reading plans. Okay, it's Lent. I need to get really serious about my Bible reading. And you start with Matthew chapter 1, and you bump into this genealogy, and you're like, that was a bad idea. But the genealogy is amazing. Because in that genealogy, in verse 5, we read this. Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father David, the king, and it goes all the way down to Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is Messiah. I mean, the amazing story here is that God continues to show off what he can do with a broken life redeemed by his covenant love. There's actually a couple other women's names, there's only four women's names aside from Mary's name that show up in this Matthew one genealogy. One, uh, one advent I'll be preaching on the four mothers of Jesus and we'll go through this in detail. But here's the four women quickly, here's testing your biblical knowledge. Tamar is listed, Rahab is listed, Ruth is listed and the wife of Uriah is listed, Bathsheba. I mean, as you look through that history of Tamar and Rahab, and Ruth, and Bathsheba, you can't help but say pretty broken lives, pretty broken people, and somehow God chooses them to bring about the Messiah in his world? Of course he does. Because then the world stands back and says, there was no way they did this on their own. This is all the power of God working their lives. Therefore, God gets the glory. This is why God brings about such amazing, radical love for us so that he gets the glory. You know, I I love the quote by St. Irenaeus, Irenaeus, a second century bishop. He says, the glory of God is man fully alive. In other words, when, when, when people, broken as we are, actually become alive... That God gets the glory. As, as, as Ken and Jack, our speaker at this weekend retreat, uh, quoted, um, which I've heard before and some of you might have heard before, you know, Jesus did not come to make bad people good. Jesus did not come to make bad people good, He came to make dead people alive. The glory of God is man fully alive. God gets the glory. Just how radical is God's hospitality, and what is the reason He gives it? It's this radical, it's covenant. It lasts, it remains. He is steadfast, even if we are not. That's the radical welcome of Jesus. And He does it so that our lives can reflect that love, so that our lives can be a living breathing symbol and image to the world that says there must be a God working in that person's life. And therefore, God gets the glory. I met Lori five years ago, this Scandinavian PhD chemistry student, brilliant, so brilliant, angry, so angry, pagan, so pagan, and so many coffee dates together, back and forth chatting. And I lost track of her until two Sundays before I left Ottawa. And there she was sitting in the pew again. And she said, We should have coffee. I said, Yeah. And we sat down in the same Starbucks we'd always sat in, same seats. And she said in her lovely Scandinavian accent, I am a Christian, yeah? And I thought it was a question at first. And then she said it again, and I realized it wasn't a question. I am a Christian. I am his. And I said, okay, wow, glory, angry, pagan, Christian. And then she said, the reason I came back is I wanted to chat with you because I got to make a decision between two agencies because I'm leaving in a couple weeks to start my life as a full time missionary. Angry, pagan, missionary, glory. She discovered the covenantal love that Jesus offers, that we celebrate now around this table. And she said, Yes. I want to marry Jesus, and she did. And then God decided to show off and make that former pagan, angry, brilliant girl a full-time missionary for Jesus, and he gets the glory. Christ Church, we are a church where ordinary people are found and formed by the gospel to reach the world for Jesus Christ. Christ. And God will get the glory. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.